Well, good morning, church family. We are so excited about this new series. My name is Brittany, um, and I am a discipleship intern here. And it is my joy, my honor, and my privilege to read our scripture this morning. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you'll turn there with me, we are going to start in verse number 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. This is what it says. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Greeks and Jews, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. God, thank you for the authority of your word. Holy Spirit, please be the loudest voice in this room today. And Jesus, it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Brittany, for reading our passage for the day. I hope you're having a good morning and a good weekend uh, as we dig into God's word. I don't know how it's been for you. It's been a challenging one for me, but had a little halo top last night, got through a keto crisis, and I am ready to roll, and that is driving me crazy, but I'm committed to it, and I'm all in, so I'm going to lean in this morning, and I hope you will as well. The Apostle Paul has no hesitation about getting right to the point, uh, and it's no different with our text today, and if you still have your Bible in front of you, uh, I want to remind you of what he's saying here in this passage as he speaks to the church in Corinth. And when we read, it is as if, and it is reality, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church at Avenue South through these words that are inspired by God. Now, most of you are aware, if you've been with us for any length of time, that God created us for good, Adam and Eve. He created us for good. We were perfect. We were sinless. Uh, But through the fall in Genesis chapter 3, it is a beautiful world, and humanity is beautiful and creative and diverse, but it is a broken world and a broken humanity. And so, We are in need of rescue. We're in need of rescue from sin and brokenness. Now, the reason I hold that up and remind us, I'm assuming those of you who are followers of Jesus, you knew that before you arrived today. But when we acknowledge and admit our brokenness and our sinfulness and our condition apart from God, it makes us relish, appreciate, and savor that much more that which God has done for us. And so the rescue that humanity needs was provided through the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to save us, those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now, the Christian message now, as it was then in Corinth, that God would incarnate himself, that God would become flesh in the person of Jesus, and that God would allow himself, perfect self in Christ, to die for sinful, broken humanity, seems foolish to many. It seems foolish to many. In the first century, the cross was a symbol of defeat. The cross was how the Roman government showed we're stronger than you, we're more powerful than you, and if you rise up against us, will crush you. You are weak. You are not strong enough. So it goes against worldly wisdom as something to be admired. And furthermore, the fact that Jesus would willingly go to the cross. Yes, Jesus was arrested. He was captured. He was tried and placed and nailed on the cross. But Jesus went willingly. He went sacrificially. That seems like weakness to much of the world, that a king would allow himself to be captured, that a king would allow himself to be mistreated and would willingly lay down his life for his subjects. The The citizens then and the kingdoms of the earth now look for women and men who are leaders, who are strong and wise, and those are important qualities. But Jesus was different in that he chose to use his influence and his power to serve and minister to others. That's Mark 10, 45. That's the message of Jesus in one verse. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and to become a ransom for many. The message of the cross goes against worldly wisdom and values, and we don't like to appear weak or feel unwise, and that's okay. It's okay not to want to appear weak. I mean, think about all of the activities and the things we're involved in. There's an Orange Theory Fitness opening up about two blocks south of us so that we can take care of our bodies and become stronger. If that's not your thing, maybe it's CrossFit or Iron Tribe or you're a good old YMCA person. Like, there are so many options for us to be healthy and to be strong, and those are good things. But oftentimes we put our trust, we put our weight, the direction of our life and how well we are based on how we can take care of ourselves. Or we put it in our own wisdom, how wise we can become, how knowledgeable we can become. Last week in the sermon I mentioned that I often read the Wall Street Journal. And somebody came up to me and I thought they were going to be surprised that I read the paper version of the Wall Street Journal. I read the digital as well, but I like the Wall Street Journal in paper because I'm not distracted by alerts and text. That's not what they wanted to talk about. They said, I can't believe you read the Wall Street Journal. I can't believe that you would educate yourself on such things. And I'm like, I don't know if I should take that as a compliment or something the Holy Spirit made available to you, like for your own awareness. But yes, I like to learn what's going on in life, to see what's happening financially, globally, economically. Yes, we read different periodicals. We pursue the internet. We Google all types of things. The exhaustive research that's representative in this room by all of the people, faculty, administrators, leadership, and our education system and in our seminaries and in our colleges and universities. We do those things, and it's all good and well, but we often do that to be prepared for the future, to fortify our own place in this world. And again, those things are not, they're not bad, they're not wrong, but it just reinforces our emphasis to place our faith in our own ability to flourish. And the message of the cross is one of self-denial. The message of the cross of Jesus is one of self-denial. Deny yourself, lay down your life, and serve others. And this pierces the heart of self-centeredness. That's why the message of the cross seems foolish. It's not one that people enjoy hearing about often. And for those of us before we came to faith in Jesus, it wasn't one that we really perhaps really enjoyed hearing about, that we should deny ourselves and lay down our ambitions and our goals and seek to serve others. But the Corinthian church had personally experienced the power of the cross And that's who Paul's talking to in this passage. When we read the Word of God and we're gathered together, we certainly want anybody to feel welcome in this place and to come in from the community who's not a follower of Jesus. 
Maybe there's someone here this morning, you're, you're dusting for God's fingerprints, you're exploring the claims of Christ. We're so grateful you're here. We want you to lean in. We want you to hear this. We want your life to be transformed by the truth of Jesus, his death, and the power of his resurrection. But Paul's talking to Christians. Paul's talking to Christ followers. And as we gather as the church, the thing that pulls us together is not just morality or works or what we're doing. The thing that unifies us is that we have been born again and we have God's Holy Spirit inside of us. Paul is talking to the gathered church in Corinth. He's talking to the gathered church at Avenue South. And what he's saying here is, listen, it may seem like foolishness to the world, but no matter how foolish Jesus seems, no matter how foolish or weak or unwise the cross of Jesus may seem, it's exactly what God said it is. And it has the power that God has promised it has the power to do. It is the power, Paul says, that's able to snatch us from death, from spiritual death, and transfer us into a kingdom of eternal life, not only when we leave this world, but to open the doorway of the kingdom of God that Jesus has opened during his life and his ministry here, and that we get to step into and open up redemptive windows of how God is redeeming and restoring what is broken and what is lost. And that won't be fully realized this side of heaven, but we pray for that and we long for that. But there is a day coming when Jesus returns that he will undo all that is wrong and he will remake all that is broken and he will banish and completely destroy and apply the conquering defeat of evil as he accomplished on the cross. He will apply it eternally once and for all when he returns. And so for those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus, we realize that the cross and our belief in it is the power of God to save us from ourselves in a way that our strength and our wisdom can't do alone. It can do a lot of good things, but it can't save us. And that's what was happening in the church in Corinth. There were people in the church in Corinth who were Greeks, Corinth and Greece. There were people who were Greeks. They were Gentiles. They were outside of the realm of understanding the Hebrew God. There were Jews in the church in Corinth. There were people who were Jewish. They had the Old Testament scriptures, but they had seen Jesus as the promised Messiah and received him. And there were people who were struggling in the community, and there were people who were wondering about Jesus and about this king who would lay down his life for others. I don't know if you saw this when Brittany read it in verse 25. It says here, it says, but the Jews ask for signs. The Jews ask for signs. They asked for signs, and the Greeks asked for wisdom. That's actually in verse 22. The Jews represented religion. They felt that they had the truth. They had scripture. They had the Old Testament. They had truth in their hands. But they had departed from the truth and began to worship and follow tradition or their interpretation of the truth. They were religious, but they were not followers of Jesus. And the power was gone from their faith. So when Jesus appeared, they asked him for a sign. Give us proof that you're the one we should be waiting on. And often people would ask Jesus for proof. And many of us, we would ask God, give me one more sign. Give me one more assurance that I'm doing what you want me to do. And even if Jesus gave us one more sign in our flesh, we would ask for yet another sign. Give me one more thing, and that'll put me over the edge. The Jews ask for signs, and they see a crucified Savior as a stumbling block. I don't know if you saw that in the text. The, the phrase stumbling block is translated scandalon. The Greek word is scandalon, which is where we get the word scandalous. It seemed scandalous to Jewish people who expected a political Savior riding in on a white stallion to overthrow the Roman government. It seemed scandalous to them that a crucified Christ is how God would bring about salvation and resurrection or, or new life for the people. They couldn't fathom a Messiah who would deny himself and experience the death that he did. And from a worldly perspective, it appeared unwise and weak 
And they wanted a conquering Messiah, not one that was condemned and crucified. But again, the wisdom of God was manifest in Jesus, becoming human, becoming a servant, dying to offer us eternal life. There were Jews who wanted signs. Give me one more sign that you're actually God. Give me one more sign that you can save me in a way that I can't save myself. But Paul said that that's what the Jews seek, but the Greeks seek wisdom. The Greeks, the Gentiles, they're after wisdom. This represented philosophy and intellectualism. They loved searching the universe for truth and for answers. The Greeks sought wisdom, especially the philosophers. They sought wisdom to answer their questions about God and about life. How many of us do that? We, we seek philosophy and new ways of thinking to answer our questions about truth and is there a God? And listen, this quest for truth guided people like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato some 300 or 400 years before Jesus. These, these men were pursuing truth. But three centuries, four centuries would pass by, and there would be people during the time of Jesus, particularly a man named Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who helped execute Jesus, who asked him the same question. What is truth? Like, really, what is truth? How do I discover it? How do I stumble upon it? And then even centuries after that, in the 15th and 16th century, people like Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes and others who pursued truth through philosophy and wisdom, and all of those pursuits are important. We should do what we can to take care of ourselves and to be strong. We should do what we can to be wise and discerning. But all of these people, whether it was the Greek philosophers before Jesus, Pontius Pilate during Jesus, or any brilliant scholar or philosopher, woman or man since, Greek philosophy and intellect has made an incredible impact on history, but it can't define truth. It can't discover for us salvation and lead us to this new life that Jesus offers so while the Jews focused on religion and ritual, the Greeks were rationalist. Everything should conform to a certain pattern of reason. How many of us in our flesh just want God to answer our prayers the way we want him to answer them? And when he moves in a way that is totally unpredictable, we are shocked and we are amazed that he did not do what seemed rational to us. But through the prophet Isaiah, God said, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And even if God explained why and how he was doing what he's doing, we might not like it or agree with it if we had the ability to understand what he was doing. And so they sought salvation. They sought truth through their own wisdom and their own understanding. And so Paul says, the Jews seek religion, and they see the cross as a stumbling block. The Greeks seek wisdom and information to help them understand what is truth. But neither of those things can provide what they're after. Neither of those things can provide what we may seek which is ultimately we were created with a desire to know the God who made us, to rescue and redeem us from this beautiful but broken world, from this beautiful and diverse and creative humanity, but it is stained with the curse of sin. And we long to be rescued. We long to be saved. That's been placed in the heart of every woman, man, and child on the planet. And the only one who can do that for us is God through the person of Jesus. And that's why Paul says in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligence. I'll reveal to you that your wisdom and your strength, as important as it is, cannot save you. It cannot rescue you. And when Paul mentions this, I mean, this is just one verse. Verse 19 is one verse in the five or six verses that we read. But verse 19 refers to Isaiah 29, 14. Verse 19 refers to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 14. He lived about seven, eight hundred years before Jesus, and he was the mouthpiece of God to God's people. God's people would have prophets among them who would speak to God on their behalf, and God would speak to them, and they would share with the people what God was wanting to communicate with them. 
And at the time that Isaiah was the prophet, God's people had wandered away from God. They had rebelled against him. They had been disobedient. They had pursued their own strength and their own wisdom. And they had made their own plans trying to find rescue and salvation. In this particular example, what Paul references in Isaiah 29, 14, actually references an even greater story in the people of God's history. About 700 years before the arrival of Christ, the people of God in the city of Jerusalem were being sieged and attacked by the Assyrian nation. The Assyrians were evil. They were mean. They filleted people alive. They did evil and horrific things, and they were the global superpower. And they came against Jerusalem. They came against God's people, and they threatened them. We're going we're gonna to kill you. We're going to sack your city. We're going to haul you off. Like It's going to be really, really bad. And when the king, Hezekiah, and his other leaders heard, this is a crisis, this is a hardship, we don't know what to do. I mean, how many of us right now walked into this room and we're dealing with a crisis, a hardship, some situation where we need strength, we need wisdom, right? Nothing wrong with that. Hezekiah didn't know what to do, and so he reached out to a regional superpower. He thought, you know what, we'll just call one of the other big bad bullies in the area. And he reached out to Egypt and the king of Egypt, and he said, listen, the Assyrians are after us. They're threatening us, and they're going to hurt us, and I don't know what to do, and so will you help us? And to be honest with you, for those of you that love history, for those of you that don't, hang with me for just a moment, but Egypt was a fading and declining regional superpower. They really couldn't help anyway. And if there was an alliance to be had between God's people, the people of Israel, and Egypt, it was going to be weak It wasn't going to accomplish what they wanted. And guess what? The Assyrians found out about God's people's plan to bring Egypt into the fray. And so the Assyrians said, and by the way, we've heard what you're doing by reaching out for help with others. And guess what? That's going to bite you. It won't work. And so there's no hope for you. And overwhelmed and consumed with fear and worry and concern after his personal wisdom didn't seem like it was playing out. And after his personal plans to gain whatever strength and power he could from another earthly source didn't pan out. You know what King Hezekiah did? I mean, this is what, this is what Paul's referring to to the church in Corinth. You know what Hezekiah did when he was facing a challenge and a crisis and the unknown future? After he exhausted every human source of help, wisdom, and strength, he went to the temple. He went to the temple. I mean, how many of us, we go to God last? Like, he's the last one we ask. We have been born again. We've been purchased and ransomed through the blood of Jesus Christ, brought into relationship with God. But we go to God when everything else fails and our Google searches and our Wall Street Journal articles and all of that fails us. And so he goes to Isaiah. He says, I don't know what to do, and I'm scared. And I'm paraphrasing. And Isaiah says, you need to call out to God. You need to pray and ask God what he thinks. You need to tap into his strength. You need to tap into his wisdom. And do you know what it says in 2 Kings 19, 19? Hezekiah bowed his head and he prayed. Hezekiah bowed his head and he prayed. Is it okay if I read his prayer to you? It's one sentence. Is that okay? 2 Kings 19, 19. Lord, this is it. If you you like, I'm not a prayer warrior. I don't know where to start. Sentence prayer. Love it. Okay, here you go. Lord, please save us. Please save us from this power that's coming against us so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you are God and you alone. And that night, the angel of God went out and struck down 185,000 Assyrians. They broke camp. They scattered with their tail tucked between their legs. Ah, They ran off. That's not in the Bible, but that's me. 
And the people of God stood on the wall and celebrated and spoke out loud about what God did for them that they couldn't do. About the wisdom of God and the strength of God and the power of God. Because God did for his people in his wisdom and in his strength what the people in their own wisdom and their own strength couldn't do for themselves. I don't know if you showed up here this morning and you're facing a, a circumstance or some sort of challenge in your life and you've well-intended, you've even gone to Christian brothers and sisters to ask their counsel. But you have not 2 Kings 19, 19. Lord, your wisdom is even greater than mine. You're the creator, I'm the created. Your wisdom is infinite while mine is finite. Your resources are unlimited Whereas my strength and my, my wisdom is limited. God, you are so other than me, and I so absolutely love that about you. Help me. The servant of the Lord asked him, help me. Your wisdom and your strength is so much better than mine. Would you help me? And guess what? The Lord loves to answer those prayers. Now, I'm not suggesting if you have an enemy in life, you pray that they'd be struck down overnight by the angel of the Lord and they'd run back... I don't know how God will manifest his plans for your life in response to your prayers. But I do know this. What may seem foolish and unwise to the world is actually what God often uses to bring about his redemptive plans for humanity. And through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of a servant-hearted king who was perfect and who was God and had all the power and all the influence to say, you should worship me, said, here you go. I'm laying it down so that I can pour myself into the flesh, become one of you, experience what you experience, know what it's like to be tempted, know what it's like to have a rough day, so that when you pray to me, I know how you feel, and I'll not only lay down my life, my perfect blood, to to shed it in exchange for your brokenness and cover your brokenness and offer you my righteousness like a robe or a garment to cover you so you have a new identity and a new future. I will then be raised from the grave so that I will not only die for you, but now I live for you to empower you with wisdom and discernment and the mind of Christ. That's another thing Paul told the church in Corinth. My gosh, if the Holy Spirit's inside of you, you have the mind of Christ available to you. You should be accessing that. These are all of the things that Jesus has done for us. These are all of the things that God has made available to us. The wisdom of Christ, the power of God, and the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul said, I don't care if you make fun of me for my faith. I don't care if you think Jesus looks foolish to you and he doesn't look like worldly kings. I just want to preach Jesus and him crucified. That's verse 23. I just want to preach Jesus and him crucified because that's who saved me. That's who rescued me. And when the chips are down, that's where my strength comes from when I'm all out. And when I'm out of wisdom and I don't know what to do and I'm scared like Hezekiah, I go run into my God. And eventually, me, you, us, we'll figure out we should go run into him first, not after. Okay, maybe that's the next step for some of us. But we will find... And the goodness and the manifest wisdom and strength of God through the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the power of the resurrection, we will find what we do not have available to ourselves. Not only wisdom and strength, but salvation for our very souls. And so Paul said, you may think this preaching about Jesus and him crucified is foolish, but the substance of the message ain't no joke. You may think me preaching and proclaiming Jesus and him crucified is foolish, 
but the substance and the guts of who Jesus is and what God says he can do and what he's promised to do for you in 2019, that's legit. And I will stake my life on it. And that's why he says, but as for me, I'm going to preach Jesus and him crucified. That's the power of the gospel. The power to save us from our sin, from death, and from hell. To transfer us into a kingdom of light and new life forever. But also the power to enable us to have the wisdom and the strength of God available to walk with us, to dictate our future, and for us to build our lives, our relationships, and our careers upon it so that we might find that abundant life that God's called us to. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment?